0: Welcome to the Educate US Podcast. With your host, Nick Saveri, Dr. Stacy Schultz and Dr. Patrice Fenton. Three former teachers and administrators, talking about a wide range of topics happening in education. Time to educate us. Hello everyone, and of course thank you for coming back to the Educate US Podcast. Make sure you can find us across all podcast platforms, rate us, review us, five stars, of course. And while you're there, by all means, just share what your thoughts are via review or email the show at theeducateusshow at gmail.com. All one word. We keep it real simple here, and we want to hear from you. And speaking of people that we want to hear from, today we're going to talk to some friends of ours specifically contacts that Stacey's had from the past, who are doing amazing work, both locally in New York and nationally. To find out about their work, you can simply go to Cassandcorn.com. And that, of course, is the website for Cass and Cornelius Minor, who are two educators who are also working to help teachers, as I said, both locally and nationally, bring about two concepts or two ideas in their classrooms that are not often talked about, which is joy and justice. And the idea here being that we want to make sure that our students feel safe, feel acknowledged, but we want to make sure that they're able to be positioned that the learning that is right for them is what is offered. And obviously that can often be difficult, but Cass and Cornelius are able to really take us through ways of finding opportunities to do so to make joy and justice as regular in classroom instruction as reading and math. And now I turn it over to my partner, Stacey, for an introduction.
1: Today, we have our guests, um, Cass and Cornelius Minor. They are two of the most warm and genuine educators and developers that I know in the field, and I'm really excited to have them here on the show. Cass and Cornelius, do you want to say hi to our listeners?
2: Oh my gosh, Stacy, it's so exciting to be here with you and like Dr. Patrice and um and, and we got Nick here in the background, but just like thank you for having us. Yeah.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that warm welcome. We are more than happy to be invited into this space and talk all and I won't say anything, but <laughs> Most things,
2: education. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and listeners, thanks for rocking with us. For those of you who are like repeat listeners, we're so excited to have you back. And um, for those of you who are here for the first time to listen on me and Cass, thank you for for joining.
1: Awesome. So you both have worked in a variety of capacities in education. What's one thing our listeners, whether an educator or parent, should always be curious about in education?
2: Mm-hmm. You know, Stacy the question that guides everything that I do both in classroom and in community is, and I know this sounds cliche, but how are the kids doing that? I'm Mm -hmm. always curious about how the kids are like, you know, what are they going through? What are they thinking? What do they need? What do they want? Like, what are they excited by? What are they excited about? What are they challenged by? Because I feel like if you know how the kids are doing, that's the most essential assessment, right? We talk about um, being you know, data driven in education, and we talk about collecting data, and and folks talk about assessment as if the only assessment um, is a state test owned by Pearson. And we know that that is not the case, right? And so when well, you know how the kids are doing, you know how to move, you know how to act, you know what to do, you know what's next. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, parents, school leaders, educators should all be curious about how the kids
1: are doing.
3: Yeah. You know, and I would definitely agree with Cornelius that my first thing I'm always paying attention to about school in general is like, how are, how are my children coming home? How are kids in general experiencing, doing, and responding to school? But since Cornelius already said that answer, (laughs) (laughs) I am going to say that the next thing I would pay attention to is how are, how are your kids' teachers feeling? Mm -hmm. Right. So I think oftentimes there is a course, we're pouring into our children, we're paying attention to their affect, but I'm often also paying attention to teachers and how they are showing up or are leaving the building. Are they exhausted? Do they seem burnt out? Do they feel rejuvenated? Do they feel excited? Um, Because I want to make sure I position myself and not just because I'm an educator, but I want to make sure I position myself as a true partner for my child's learning. And to do that, I, I have to build a trusted connected relationship with the teacher. So if I'm not paying attention to them and, and and their feelings, I don't think that I can build something authentic with them.
4: Thank you so much for that. I just want to go on record as saying you all have such warm and pleasant energy. We're virtual listeners. So we're not in person. We're not in a <laughs> podcast studio, but the warmth <laughs> is totally coming through. I can just tell how amazing you are in, in rooms with young people. So I just wanted to shout you all out for that. And thank you for joining us. I hope that we can connect in person in Brooklyn sometime. So I would love to just jump into something that we've been discussing around book bans. So this is something that's been popping up across our country in different spaces. And we are always kind of centering ourselves around how to support listeners in addressing these issues in very like concrete and direct ways without too much like jargon and things like that, that we all know. Um, proliferates education. So what advice would you offer to both educators and or parents where legislation banning of curriculum or books is prevalent in their in their areas? Um, yeah. So the,
3: the first, I mean, there's so much. And I also want to say, whatever Cornelius now about to say is with an asterisk, right? Because we live in New York City, a place, we, we live in New York City, we parent, our kids go to school in New York City. Um, and I do think the advice we have to offer you know Cornelius works more nationally I do a little bit of work nationally um but we have witnessed teachers and parents and kids going through these experiences where their their existence right is being threatened and so we are going to offer our advice of course but I just want to say like you know we're going to do our best to to lend a- advice to folks but it is mm-hmm. a real sense of um, you know i hate to like equivocate into this but it's almost like people are in this sort of like ideological war with literacy in a lot of different ways um especially around book banning but i do think the first thing i want to say is we need diverse dot org has really powerful resources that i don't know everybody knows about specifically around grassroots organizing on the community level to develop strategies and connections with your community, to work together to push back against dangerous legislation and book bannings that may happen in your school community. So if you go to their website, they have a very thorough and locally developed resources for people to utilize. And the other thing I'll say, just because it's not passing through legislation here in New York and more progressive spaces, it doesn't mean that there's not rhetoric happening in in places that are you know have more blue voting et cetera. and so to that end i am just always really mindful of of what people are reading in school and the kinds of connections again that i have with my school community so i don't want the first time i talk to my kids school community to be when i'm angry or mad about something that's happening in the curriculum or an experience that they've had And so again, I would say like my first, like most basic piece of advice that goes for a lot of different things is is make yourself just like a known quantity from a warm and positive space, as opposed to an absent figure until something, until the red flag happens. So that's typically like my modus operandi. Um, But I know that Cornelius has worked in in deep community with some folks who have experienced the the more um, explicit and concrete book banning that's really impacted some folks.
2: You know, I've been really lucky to have been in community with groups of black women in Texas, groups of young people in Florida, you know, who are really thinking actively about this. And um, I wanna just name very clearly that when we're talking about book banning, we're not just talking about book banning. We're talking about a real asphyxiation of people's like future development. Mm -hmm. Um, And here's what I mean by that, that the books that are most often targeted, for example, are the books that encourage us to show or express concern about our environment. The books that are often targeted are the books that might suggest that all humans are equal. The books that are often targeted are the books that suggest that like we might be stronger if we live and work and commune together. And here's why I named that because like kids need those lessons, right? That everything that I am right now, I know because my fifth grade teacher read me books about the environment, right? Everything that I am right now, I know because like I got a chance to study with people who were like really passionate about like unity, right? And so if you remove those opportunities, you remove people's future selves, right? And so we're not just talking about like books today. We're talking about who Dr. Patrice can be tomorrow, right? We're not just talking about books today. We're talking about who Stacy might be 20 years from now when she graduates from college. You know, and so like, that's what really terrifies me is that all of my advocacy, I can point back to the storybooks where that advocacy like came from, right? You know, and so people are like, oh, how did you become Cornelius? I'm like, oh, because these people read to me these books that like inspired my concern in these issues. Um, and so the thing that excites me the most about this moment, and I'm a big nerd, is um, is that, like, I think about Star Wars, that this is the moment where we can be the resistance, right? That you got Darth Vader building a Death Star right now in Florida, in Texas. And, you know, wherever we got Darth Vader building a Death Star. And we get to get, like, a few group, you know, a few people. You don't need, like, the whole universe. You need, like, five people in a broken down spaceship, right? Or you need, you know, five people in a library who are going to decide that they're going to do... The, the powerful read aloud, despite what the governor says. You need like six people in a PTA who say, you know what, we can host a book night. Or you need like the really cool, like, you know, soccer dad or soccer mom who's like, you know what, after the team plays, we're gonna read two stories about how to be a powerful loser or how to share like, you know, your excitement or your winning or your power with people on the other team. Like that's what we need right now. And those aren't really big acts. Those aren't acts that require us to sacrifice a lot. Those are acts that just require us to like recognize what our communities need and step into those voids.
0: As you hit on a moment ago, something I just want you to expand on, which is the idea that where we may think we're safe, you know, in, in what we consider quote unquote, like sort of blue spaces as it relates to these conversations about, about texts and and accessibility and what we question and what we, what we you know, seemingly let move forward. Um, and and Courtney's, obviously obviously see, is at a national level as well. And in spaces that, you know, are more overt about bias and in the efforts to, to remove books, but Cass, just can you expand on that in terms of what feels more, more covert or the conversations that are starting to, pe- that start to appear in spaces that we don't normally think would be the place for those conversations to happen as it relates to what feels appropriate for students to have access to
3: yeah, absolutely. You know it's interesting because I think one of the things that I have noticed more is this idea that now people have permission to say things that they wouldn't feel comfortable saying five years ago, um particularly around you know, black lives matter, particularly around queer culture. And so I remember when I was teaching elementary school, for example, this is you know, twenty fifteen. I write about this in my new book. Like we had um the Orlando massacre happens during that year, the pulse massacre and the sh- uh, where forty folks who were dancing at this gay nightclub were shot and killed by an armed murderer. And I remember I was so Sunset Park, for those of you who are not familiar here in Brooklyn, is a very diverse neighborhood, primarily Latinx, Chinese, Yemeni, um and Arabic students. And so I was teaching, and this is the end of my last year of teaching and they came in this is in june and you know they're speaking in spanish and then they're they're saying the word guns in spanish and they're very animatedly talking about what they had just heard on the news and you know they were saying all of these things about gay folks that were that were bad that were they were associating negativity with gay people And so for me, as their teacher, we had formed like this really robust community where we ask questions and we Mm -hmm. do a lot of the internal work and we take what kids are witnessing in their social worlds and we process that together and we create meaning regarding that. And so I remember, you know, as a teacher and also somebody who had like a lot of skin in the game at that point, like year 10, I'm I'm feeling very confident um, in this kind of teaching. But I remember there were so many people in my elementary school community who didn't feel comfortable talking about this at all. And in fact, there were a lot of kids in my class who had families who are, you know, very religious, very Catholic, who were really not interested in their kids engaging in this conversation. But because I had developed such a powerful relationship with families, and because I really was, you know, I I was pretty well versed in inquiry based teaching. It really was this beautiful opportunity for kids to learn uh, about like, Like, I know gay people. Like, just because you don't say that word, because you hear negative words around it, doesn't mean you don't know gay people. And so we did all of this work around queer culture. It was really beautiful. There was definitely some community processing that we had to do. But my point here is that I think that this has been going on, like the uncomfortability around different topics in school spaces, liberal progressive spaces has been going on for a really long time. But I think what we're facing now is it's this thing where it's like, well, now I have the power to say, no, you can't teach this or talk about it because look at what all of these other people are not allowing. And so that is like the real tension that I think is different in progressive spaces now. So, you know, we work in schools in different parts of the city where you have a a hugely diverse city, right? So you have different demographics depending on what district you're in or even just which school you're at in the district and you know families who show up in PTA spaces or school leadership team spaces often are are having a major source of of bending the will of what educators are willing to do because of their job security because they don't want to be like you know getting in trouble so to speak by their principal and so i think the real difference here is that it used to be like this thing we were we were really searching and seeking towards like this real critical inclusivity in school spaces regarding race, ability, and gender. And now there there's definitely still many, many people who are searching towards that, but you have these small factions being like, oh, well, I don't I don't really have to do that anymore because there's all of these other people who are working towards something different that's way more comfortable and way less work for me and is really going to give my kids sort of like this easy experience throughout school in terms of who they are and who they get to be based on how they were born. And so I, I, you know, I love, I don't know if love is the right word, but I am in the good fight. And I know there are a lot of people in the good fight, but I do think we really have to continue to support people and staying awake. Like the, just because we're here in New York City or you're over there in Portland or Seattle or wherever, like there's plenty, plenty of power circles happening around the new legislation that is infecting people's ideology and is making them feel really okay about mediocrity
1: and speaking of in the fight you recent and you mentioned your book um and you have a book out recently uh Mm -hmm. teaching fiercely spreading joy and justice in our schools is the title and you know visiting your website and and also looking and previewing the book uh you really get that sense of joy and justice Mm -hmm. and as you speak about it, I hear you speak about the the need of resistance, the need of co-creating, the need of unpacking, you know, injustices towards liberation. Uh, can you tell us more about that intersection of joy and justice?
3: yeah you know it's so interesting i think that this is something that i am still continuing to figure out and so the best i could do in teaching fiercely is sort of like right where i'm at in terms of like coming to more understanding or synthesizing you know my experiences alongside other people and i think the biggest thing that i have determined is that you cannot have one without the other so you can't really experience sheer joy if you're not working towards justice And justice really doesn't exist unless people are able to experience joy in school spaces. And so part of where I think we're at for a lot of educators, uh, families who are sending their kids to school, and especially the children who are within it, is like, we are having to work our muscles in different ways to find joy in in unlikely places, right? So I think oftentimes people, you know, that sort of Western construct of joy is like, the graduation celebration or like the birthday party or like you know going for ice cream and things like that and i think for those who are in education for a long time and still like really are in it for the love of the game like you know i'm assuming all of you and a lot of folks in our network is that we are finding joy with the with the work that comes towards like finding justice alongside it And so one of the, one of my favorite things that I had the opportunity to write about is just the relationships I was able to build in the communities of teachers and families and kids I worked with. And that kind of joy doesn't necessarily come from, you know, people hire like professional development, there will be like, you know, community celebrations and things like that. But I think the regular typical, you know, hallway like hallway connections, the teacher lunch experience, the moments in the coffee room when you're like having coffee and you're like trying to fix the machine and your, your friend comes over and helps you figure it out. Like that series of those like micro interactions over time are the most powerful sources of joy for people in school communities. And that really comes from the organic bonds that you develop over time. And I think when you really have those that series of bonds, then you can really talk about the more meaningful stuff that mm-hmm. makes a huge difference for how kids are able to experience school and how you are able to talk about things that you haven't figured out yet. Because if we can't talk about what we haven't figured out, then it's like, what are we doing? And I think we I think we see and witness a lot of that in schools. People are afraid to see what they don't know because of all of these other, you know, consequences mm-hmm. that come from, you know, various sources of hegemony. <laughs> <laughs>
4: So I was poking around on your website and this phrase popped out at me. Mm. Every single person who participates in school is operating in an in-between space. I'm so intrigued. Can you say uh-huh. more about that?
3: <laughs> yeah, that would be something I wrote, yeah. <laughs> I love it. I don't know. For any of you listening who have ever tried to develop a website copy, it is um, a real... <laughs> It's a a real doozy in terms of getting it just so. But one of the things that, you know, and this sort of connects to what I just said, the in-between space is really the third space, the liminal space. And I think for a lot of folks who have experienced any sort of otherness in school outside dominant culture. So if you're not, um, you know, if you have identity markers that are largely outside of whiteness, Christianity, able-bodiedness, um, your are home, you're from like middle, upper class, like if you're operating in a lot of identities that are outside that space, like chances are you are always existing internally in a space of in-betweenness in school. You don't feel like you're quite over there or over there, but you're kind of like in this space that hasn't yet been defined. And so what i work towards with a lot of support from Cornelius, of course and a lot of the community that i'm surrounded by is is reclaiming that in between space and finding like a newness and a possibility in how we learn and um almost i hate this word but it's something different than legitimize
2: well that's what people don't understand
3: okay <laughs> yeah. It's like we want to legitimize these spaces that are in the in-between in school, because that's where a lot of folks in school, we want to talk about public education, we're talking about the majority of, you know, Black, Indigenous people of color are in our public schools. So when we can legitimize the in-betweenness of their experience as meaningful, when we can figure out how to replicate that in-betweenness in classroom discourse, like, that's where you find, like, the real, like, justice happening in school. That's where you find kids having really deep learning happening. And that's when you have teachers going home at the end of the day feeling like they can rest their head nicely on their pillow at night because they have, you know, they feel like they've made a difference, which is very different than how a lot of us, I'll even speak for myself, have been leaving schools lately. It's it's really hard to feel like you have turned the knob that is moving a, a people or a person or individuals forward, given all of the things that folks have to navigate in in the institution of school.
0: See, Cornelius, you you tapped into my my nerddom with your Star Wars analogy earlier, so I'm going I'm to bring I'm going to bring that back up. See, unfortunately, for those who were seeing this on video, which there will not be video for this yet, uh, my graphic novel section of my library is actually right over there. Nice. Um, Cornelius, how do you reconcile? Yeah, we're at a time where superheroes, comic books, everything's at the forefront of the media. The stuff that we used to have to go to shops for, right? Small little places that we would get joked on by everybody else in school is now like everywhere. How is it possible we're at a time where the message of superheroes and what we've seen, and not to mention the fact that we're at a place where we're seeing greater representation. Um, but that's contrasted by a time where we're seeing a return to authoritarian ideology, um, this this pushback against diverse thinking or or just open dialogue, has that play a role when pop culture seems to be more embracing of the superheroes that we've always been familiar with and those concepts? But then there's you know the the folks like the Ron DeSantis of the world that represent a completely you know ideological opposite. Does that? It just strikes me as odd because usually pop culture tends to sort of go along the lines of where we are as a society, but it seems like there seems to be um, pushback or a a very potent form of resistance. Is that sort of where you are with all that?
2: I want to make a distinction too because what we're experiencing right now is, I think, a byproduct of unexamined popular culture, right? Um, mm-hmm. Case in point, I was just having this conversation with a friend. Okay. Um, Batman, for example, rich, white tech bro gets a uniform and can now beat people up legitimately like if we gave elon musk a bat suit, who would he come for first he would come for poor people he would come for brown people he would come for you know like really like you know who would he come for mm-hmm. like instead of making war on poverty people make war on the poor right instead of like you know and so like all of those things and so like this is all like popular culture unexamined, right? You know, so everybody wants to be Batman, but don't nobody really check to see, like, like, because a better use of Batman's time would be wealth redistribution, right? He doesn't need a suit, he doesn't need a plane, he needs to redistribute wealth, right? Like he, Batman is a one percenter. Right. And so like I think about all of like so I think about all of that stuff that like, so we're in this moment where we all worship these heroes, but we haven't taken a three-dimensional look at them right um, and so so I imagine if we ask Ron DeSantis right now he thinks he's Batman like he's you know like I you know and so but again, it's popular culture like unexamined, you know that when you think about you know and Yoda taught us well, you know like when you give in to things like fear um that becomes hatred and that's a path to like the dark, right And so people fear, My neighborhood changing or people fear that my kid might sit next to someone who speaks Spanish and needs extra help or people fear that like my kid might get put in a class and they might have to share spaces with kids with learning disabilities, you know, people fear these things, they don't articulate these fears, but they nurture these fears by how they vote. They nurture these fears by how they like gather in corners or in living rooms in exclusive neighborhoods and, and talk, right? They nurture these fears on school boards. And then these fears become policy, and this policy becomes really dark. Right. Um, I would argue, I don't think that there's such a thing as like, you know, this binary good bad, you know, binary serve no one. Um, but there is unexamined fear, right? You know, that 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 you know, it only took Luke a little. Well, before he put on a black uniform, right? You know, like you know, like and so, like that idea that if I don't examine a thing or if I don't confront my past, it can become something real ugly. I mean, and then confronting one's past, confronting one's like path, you know, and so all of these things. And so, what does it mean to confront past as a school board? What does it mean to confront past as a school? You know, like I, I was just in a school that had a renaming because the school itself was named after someone who owned humans, right? Um, And so to confront that as a school community isn't fun, Um, but to not confront that means that every kid who has to walk in, every kid who has to receive a diploma with a slave-owning person's name on it, like that's violence, right? And so, and I think what people are afraid of right now is the confrontation.
3: You know, Cornelius and I talk about this complacency a lot that we notice in schools, right? Like You know, if you are not, like, if you are in New York City or if you're in one of these blue spaces, I keep on harping on this because I think it's a real problem. If you're not actively seeking information about what's happening on the educational scene in terms of curricular legislation, in terms of textual, like, literacy uh, legislation, in terms of what your child is able to read or not read, or even how your child's teacher is legally allowed to teach you now. Like you really have to seek information that is valid, well-researched, robust from from sources that are reliable. And so it's frustrating because it's a lot of work. Like it's a lot of work for me. And this is like, you know, my career since I was like 23 years old. And so I just think about how much work it is to stay well informed and stay on top of all of these issues that matter for social justice, for racial justice in our school communities. And so I think that the real danger that we are all experiencing right now is that it's, it's far easier to appeal to people's, you know, common sense people, like, This is for the kids, we're just, you know, kids should be able to watch cartoons like they shouldn't have to engage in all of these hard conversations when they're in first grade. Like there's a lot of that rhetoric happening right now. And that's a a much easier thing to buy into for people rather than, you know, folks like me and Cornelius who are just like, you know, kids experience the social world just like you and me. And so to choose to not engage with them, you're essentially just creating space for them to come to their own conclusions, which is typically going to come from a media screen. And I think for me, when we think about pop culture and and how it's impacting communities of people, like we have a community of people that are younger than 12 years old right now. They're being most deeply impacted by the various forms of, of media consumption because it's not checked in any other
2: space. Even simple things. I was having a really profound conversation with an assistant principal about vaping in middle school. Mm -hmm. She's having a really difficult time with her sixth graders vaping. And when I say sixth graders, for those who aren't kid adjacent, I'm talking 11 year olds, right? And so 11 year olds are buying synthesized tobacco products and smoking in public space, right? 11 year olds. And, um, and she's having a really difficult time dealing with it. And one of the things that she decided to do was she wanted to have a nurse come in and support her work with like just educating kids on the dangers of vaping. Um, And so she'd contacted various nurses and like really had this really medically sound approach to like why you need to take care of your lungs if you're 11 Um, and parents protested it. They said that um, kids are too young to be in school talking about vaping. and the danger here is like if we don't learn about it in homeroom, you're gonna learn about it from your friend on fifth F. And and I would rather be sitting in the or room. the
3: five smoke shops that are now accessible <laughs> to children near their middle schools. Yeah,
2: you know, and so and and so I would rather kids be in a room with their principal and a nurse talking about these things at age 11 then learning about it from the multicolored ad that's in front of the bodega or the sweet smelling aroma that they smell when they walk by the smoke shop. Like all of these things are speaking to kids if we're not. Um, and and the, the same, it's not just vaping though, right? It's like understanding like their bodies and understanding their agency and understanding consent. It is understanding gender and race and class. It's all of these things that again, media, the streets are speaking if we're not. And, um, and and that's my biggest fear right now is that we're not speaking. And so the people who market and influence vape pens are speaking, <laughs> you know, the people who market and influence and deal in misinformation are speaking.
4: Um, yeah, it's actually a really great segue to uh, last question. We'd love to pose to both of you. So you think about, I you know in education, we talk about like looks like, sounds like quite a bit. So we like to do <laughs> a looks like, sounds like with you both. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what does the ideal classroom look like and sound like? You just gave a really powerful example of a principal really actively responding to something in her school building and getting resistance from parents, right? But what I heard was remnants of what I would say would be an ideal classroom. So really curious to hear from both your perspectives, like what what should that look like from your lens based on like your experiences in school buildings, your experiences as as parents, what should it look like what should it sound like what should it feel like and what are some of those challenges and barriers that come up to us like getting there mm. big question <laughs>
3: that's a huge question um but i think but we think about this all the time so you know i wrote about in teaching fiercely dr jamila light right like she has this idea of vision driven justice and i think just like <clears> to <throat> your point dr patrice like we're always saying what we don't want Right. But what is it that we're working towards? What is it that we do want? And so for me, like I can I can list the things off. Like I want, I want classrooms to be communal. I want them to be multiliterate. I want the learning to be relational. I want classrooms to be collaborative. I don't want them to be competitive. I want them to be process oriented. I don't want them to be reliant on a product. And so I have in my mind like these containers. Like, you know, we know when we, we can name a thing, it gives us power to activate the thing. And so I think it feels, it, it feels like a second home. Like when you can develop a classroom that is characterized by, you know, collaboration and community and relationship, we, I'm sure you all have been into that space at, at some juncture in your life. And it's, it's, it's a beautiful feeling, like you feel like you can mess up and you feel like that's normal and you feel like it's meaningful and you feel like I'm going to come back to this. Because I have all of these people around me who believe that I can be something or do something or make something of this idea I have. Um, And, you know, I think the barriers, the barriers for making that happen are both tremendous and tiny at the same time. I mean, they're tremendous in that we've inherited like this racist school infrastructure, right? And so I think everybody here knows and understands that. And so for us, because we can name it, we have a pretty good idea how it operates. And we believe that children in front of us are, are here with us to do something together, like to do something meaningful together. Like we have that deep conviction and belief. Yeah. And so when you have folks in a space who are operating in that ideal, the barriers don't feel that tremendous. But when you're working in a school community, and you have only one or two people out of the 80 people on staff who really know and understand the infrastructure we've inherited, the histories that people come into school spaces with, the intricacies of curriculum that are both enlightening and problematic. There it, it feels like you're just unpinning so many different things. It feels overwhelming. And that that like I have experienced many times. Like it feels like, oh my gosh, I don't know if my time spent here is valuable at all. Like, I don't know what I'm doing and I've been doing this forever, it feels like. Um, And so sometimes, I don't know, there are some days where I'm just like, oh my goodness, this feels so hard and impossible. But there are other days where I'm just like, hell yeah, like we can do this. This is different. Kids are thriving. People, teachers are thriving. Families are excited. And so we experience like, you know, I feel like the best and worst. (laughs) You know, oh, and spaces
2: and uh, past like this makes me think about like I'm um, so it's the end of the school year here in New York City and um and so the eighth graders who are leaving middle school right now and I I live in middle school um mm-hmm. so the eighth graders who are leaving middle school right now were sixth graders at the pandemic so they 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 had a virtual start to their middle school experience mm-hmm. and so this is a very like kind of sensitive group of kids like me their teachers very sensitive like all of it right like um but this. We've been through so much with this group of eighth graders right now. And um, Cass doesn't remember this. You might like um, one of our favorite middle school teachers, sixth grade science teacher, Shirley. Um, oh. and, and Shirley, um, so we get all these kids as sixth graders in the pandemic. So we didn't meet them. There was no first day of school. They logged onto their computers. Right. And, um, and one of the things that Shirley did during lunchtime was she had basically like a cooking show.
3: How could she, I forget
2: that? Yeah, she would She would like, so the kids would just be on their computers because they were. All, we were all at home and she would be making her lunch, but she would leave the Zoom on. So it was this Rachel Ray style cooking show that she would do on Zoom. And the kids would just kind of like lurk around and watch her making her lunch. And so every day they would see her making like a sandwich or like, peanut butter, you know, like, but it was like basic. It wasn't even like fancy, but she would just like cook in front of them because we were all on Zoom and nobody knew what to do. Um, And so fast forward now, this eighth grader who's leaving, like, remembered the recipes.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And like, for me, like, that's, we were all so broken. And this Mm -hmm. kid, like, what he held on to was the recipes. Like, and like, that's what the ideal looks like, that she's a science teacher. I don't know if he, that kid met all the state level competencies in science, but that kid felt seen and held and affirmed. And he three years, like we're in the third year. and He remembers every recipe. And it doesn't have to be like everybody go out and do a cooking show, but like everybody go out and think about what children need. Everybody go out and like identify what you can contribute to that need. Everybody go out and find the space to make that happen in your school day. Like that's the ideal, right? So I don't want to be after this podcast everybody doing a cooking show that's not it (laughs) (laughs) uh
3: patrice you know to to cornelius's point like the story this anecdote that he's sharing it's like this is the challenge we experience things like this we witness them we support teachers they're they're coming up with these creative ideas all on their own um and then they're rewarded for it, right? Like, you know, kids are productive, they're engaged, like all of their Zoom cameras are on, like, you know, everybody's like, great work, right? But I think the challenge becomes like, how do you help people understand the effort and assessment and understanding and connection a teacher like Shirley is doing to get it to the space where the kid, the child is remembering of all of the things they experienced in middle school, the lunchtime cooking class with Shirley. Right. And so I think it is understanding like that deep, like that deeply rooted relationship you have with students. And it's also using our intellect and our knowledge to name what is happening here. So people understand it and they don't say, like Cornelius is this talking about, like, I want everybody to institute a cooking class during lunchtime and then this will happen. Like, it's not that. Right. So what he's talking about is, you know, Shirley is able to develop relational learning. One of the things we know about relational learning is that it matters most for kids who traditionally or historically have not done well in school. So if I'm designing a curriculum and I'm examining it across seven days or three weeks, where are all of the points of connection I have the students that are helping me build relationship with them and them building relationships with one another? And so it's twofold, right? It's the affective learning that Cornelius is describing, but it's also folks like us who need to do a, a concerted effort and a prolific effort of helping people know and understand what it is teachers like Shirley are doing so they can understand and implement it in their practice too.
1: Well, thank you both. It's been really amazing to have you on. But before we go on that note, Cass, you're leading us right to a beautiful moment to Tell the listeners how they can follow you all and hear about how you are prolifically sharing and how they may um, also work with the two of you. Cause I know you both do a lot of work in schools. You spoke to that, but how can our listeners learn more?
3: Yes. Yeah, so Cornelius and I are very easy to find. Uh, you can first go to our website, castandcorn.com that's pass with a K and through our website, you know, uh, it was referenced several times here. There's, there's lots of fun morsels of information, but you can also just send like a a, con- there's a contact form there if you're interested in working directly with us. Um, but I also just invite you to sign up for our newsletter. You can also do that on our website. We have a lot of like new offerings. We have workshops based in New York City here through the Minor Collective, our LLC and community based organization that we run. We're heavily active on social media. Uh, so at MissCast1 for me, the number one Cornelius.
2: At Mr. Minor on Twitter, M-I-S-T-E-R-M-I-N-O-R, and then my name Cornelius Minor on Insta.
3: Absolutely. So we're all over the place. We have a we have a pretty heavy digital footprint. Um so you can find us there. But I would say the safest bet is to go to our website. That's that's the most genuine, um, genuinely curated pass and cornelius mm-hmm. endeavor that you will to come across. And then, of course, you'll find um, I have a new book teaching fiercely spreading joy and justice in our school. Lots of information there, and how to order it it's everywhere: Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all that good stuff. And then Cornelius also has his evergreen text <laughs> on Year Five. We got this. What's the colon after we got this?
2: Uh, I don't even remember. <laughs> like, I'm not a great salesperson. Need- I, I like writing books. I don't. I don't know if I love selling them.
3: <laughs> we got this. <laughs>
1: amazing (laughs) (laughs) well thank you both yeah and both the books and the titles are also on the website and as you mentioned on your easy to find on social media and and highly recommend both of them so um again thank you both for being here with us today
3: thank you so much for having us we really appreciate being
0: here with you thank you for listening to the educate us podcast Subscribe to the show, available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please, please, please leave us a review or comment wherever you can. We want to hear from you. If you have a question, comment, or just want to be part of the conversation, email us at us show at gmail.com. This has been a production of Leon Media Network. I'm Nick Saveri.
4: I'm Patrice Spencer, and I'm Stacey Schultz.
0: We'll see you next time.